From Washington, this is Political Theater, Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Welcome back to Political Theater, and I'm joined by Bridget Bowman and Simone Pathay, our two senior political reporters at Roll Call. And we're going to talk a little bit about vulnerable Senate Democrats, particularly as we approach the November election. Bridget, Simone, thanks for joining. Thank you. Good to be here. So what we saw uh, in in the we're, – we're in the midst of the shutdown, wind down, if you will. What we saw over the weekend and in the intervening days, you know, until now, the government's back in action at least for a few weeks, uh, is vulnerable Democrats, you know, kind of bringing their their issues to the to the fore because they, they know how vulnerable they are. So we're going to talk about these 10, you know, races. We're going to get to every single one of them, but I definitely want to talk about the people who are in the most jeopardy. Uh, so let's start at the top with Claire McCaskill, who is arguably, you know, the most vulnerable Senate Democrat in Missouri. Um, Simone, <laughs> uh, the, what's what's going on with Claire McCaskill? She has this tough race, and she has a, a, a sort of a daunting challenge in a, in a Republican trending state. Yeah, so this is definitely a Trump state, as we said. Um, she's facing a competitive election, looks to be against the Attorney General, Josh Hawley, a Republican recruit who Republicans here in Washington are pretty excited about. Conservatives seem to like him, too. He's the rare candidate who's kind of threading that needle between the two different wings of the Republican Party. Um, just this morning, uh, Missouri Rising released this digital ad where they morphed Claire McCaskill's face and Hillary Clinton's face. So oh, Hillary Clinton's back. Any doubt that Clinton was going to be part of the midterms, here we go. Um, so that is a constant narrative that she's going to be up against, that she's too liberal, that she put immigrants ahead of, you know, military, working families, children. And the Democrats had their own polling on this about the shutdown that showed that Largely, Republicans would take the blame for a shutdown because they control the government. But if in these especially five states where these Democrats are up for re-election in Trump states, if the issue was framed as a shutdown because of immigration, it flipped and Democrats were to blame. So everyone was pretty much on notice that this was going to be a huge issue for them. And of course, Republicans did frame it as immigration. And it, it, McCaskill seemed to know this because she, right as we were approaching the shutdown late Friday night, uh, she she asked for unanimous consent to make sure that some politically popular programs that are important to Missouri and her constituents, uh, and particularly to possibly Republican crossover voters, uh, would, would be taken care of. The majority leader objected. I ask unanimous consent that the Senate proceed to the immediate consideration of calendar number 36, H.R. 1301, that the amendment at the desk providing for continuing appropriations for pay and death benefits for members of the armed services be considered and agreed to with no intervening action or debate. Is there objection? Mr. President, reserving the right to object. So, you know, she has uh, sort of defied the odds in 2006 and 2012. She had the benefit of a terrible opponent in 2012 <laughs> in, t- in Todd Aiken. Uh, and, and so the, the math for her is kind of daunting. Bridget, what are some, who are some of the other people who you noticed, you know, were, were, seemed to be going against the Democrats' hard line early in the shutdown? Uh, who, who are some of these other Democrats who are saying like, hey, maybe we should try to solve this sooner rather than later? Sure. So some of the other Democrats are those in states that Trump won by double digits and more. Um, You can look to the folks who voted yes on CR on Friday night before the government shutdown. So that included McCaskill, uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Joe Donnelly of Indiana, Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, and also includes new Alabama Senator Doug Jones, who's not up until 2020. Uh, So those senators as well are 
are in pretty red states are up for re-election and know that they don't want to be blamed for a shutdown, as Simone was saying, especially if it's framed over immigration. We had the spectacle also of Mitch McConnell thanking these Democrats mm-hmm. for for not you know, wanting to shut the government down. Does that fly in the face of some Republican messaging, though? Could we see this possibly come up in an ad <laughs> saying, you know, like Mitch McConnell thanks uh, Joe Manchin <laughs> or Heidi Heitkamp? Well, technically, no, because you can't use use, uh, footage from the Capitol from a committee hearing in a political ad that's against the law. Um, But you could see them talking about it on Mm -hmm. the campaign trail, especially that some of these senators were part of the bipartisan group that was working, kind of took it upon themselves uh, to forge their own solution. And you see images of them outside the meeting on CNN all gathered together. So you could see that pop up in an ad, but not actually the floor debate itself, which is also kind of a weird right. uh, wrinkle in that too. Yeah. And, or, or maybe even just like sort of quoted, you know, mm-hmm. you see, you see the people quoted, right. you know, and, and obviously, you know, that's public. Things, you know, looked kind of terrible over the weekend, right? It, was, it said, you know, we said, you know, who, who, how can they bridge these differences? And then all of a sudden on Monday, things kind of came together quickly. This bipartisan group, Bridget, that you mentioned, you know, basically took it to the leaders and said, like, hey, this is dumb. Let's <laughs> let's let's figure this out. Um, and and Chuck Schumer and and Mitch McConnell went for it. And then we had these like very lopsided votes. 81 to 18 to, you know, cut off debate on the continuing resolution and then to pass it. And for the most part, you know, the dynamic that we saw among this eight, the 18 who voted against it were it was a lot of, of primarily very heavily liberal uh, Democrats or Democrats who were possibly presidential contenders in 2020, like Kamala Harris. Uh, but there was one Democrat who defied this sort of order. And uh, Simone, you wrote a story about that. Who is this? Who is this Democrat? <laughs> This is John Tester from Montana. He, again, is one of these Trump state Democrats. Um, Trump only won Montana by about 20 points. So only by about 20 points. In the scheme of things, <laughs> at least you're not running in West Virginia where it's closer to 40-something points. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, you know, that that's a real thing for him to consider. But you're right. He was the only one of these Democrats up for re-election in 2018 who went the other way and actually voted to essentially keep the government closed. He did so for very various reasons. He said um, community health centers was a big issue for him, Mm -hmm. um, funding the children's health program. He had earlier sponsored um, bipartisan legislation to fund it for five years. This actually funds it for six years. So not exactly sure (laughs) what the holdup was there. But an important distinction, he was trying to get out in front of the immigration issue. He knows that Republicans are going to attack him on this. Immigration, of course, in Montana is not a huge issue. The Hispanic population is less than 4%. They're worried about the Canadians, <laughs> right. people from Alberta, you know, so he came streaming out, over the border. <laughs> Go skiing. He came out really clearly. He told our, uh, our colleague Joe Williams that this has nothing to do with DACA. Important to note that he is the only Democratic senator left in the Senate who actually voted against the DREAM Act in 2010. Um, So, again, really trying to get out in front of this Republican attack that that's not why he was voting for this. It was really about community health centers and just not liking the idea that we've been governing in this way with these short term budgets. It is a fact that we need a better budget. We need a budget that works for America. We need a budget that goes through the end of the fiscal year, which isn't that long from now, by the way, only the end of September. It is a fact that we need CHIP funding and money for community health centers and certainty for our military and money for the northern and southern borders and for opioids, and the list goes on. The majority leader has said that they've been working on a 
budget settlement for weeks. I think most of us, if not all of us, are willing to stay here and work until this work gets done. I'm certainly willing to. To call him unique is to sell it short. (laughs) I mean, he's got this, you know, kind of 1950s flap top. Uh He's missing three fingers because of a farming accident, you know, when he was a kid. Uh, He's a gigantic man. Uh, You know, he likes to drive his tractor and and actually drives the tractor himself. It's not this sort of faux rancher type. Uh, He seems to have a constituency of his own. You know, he, he, like McCaskill, was elected in 2006 and 2012. They're part of the same class. Uh, He barely won both times. Always seems to sort of, you know, scrape by in in, in these elections. He also ran the campaign arm in the the last cycle, uh, which was a little bit of a disappointment for, for Democrats. They thought they were going to to win again. Are you getting any indication of how, you know, Republicans might be using this vote against him? Yeah, that's a great point. So you saw right away his opponents run with the immigration line. Interestingly, I thought the spin from the Republican campaign Senate committee was really interesting in that their attack, they said, he is not the same guy that he used to be. He can no longer he's gone be gone Washington. He's so gone Washington. They clearly know that he's trying to run on this brand. Like you mm-hmm. said, he's an actual legit farmer, um, but was also chairman of the DSEC. So he's got this sort of bipolar establishment, real guy thing going on. And so they are trying to get in there and wedge between him and this brand that he is relying on. Bridget, some of the other sort of I, it's I hesitate to call them second tier races, uh, but like you know, we, you have these five, you know, Democrats that we've been discussing who who are in states that Trump won very easily: Missouri, Indiana, uh, West Virginia, North Dakota, Heidi Heitkamp's race, and, and John Tester. But then there's this other tier of states where people are up for re-election uh, that Trump barely won, but still there's some concern. And who's who's in this sort of second tier? of Senate Democrats who need to be sort of vigilant if they want to be coming back to Washington in 2019. Sure. So these include uh, Democratic senators like Bob Casey from Pennsylvania, Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin, uh, Sherrod Brown from Ohio, uh, these kinds of Democrats, like you said, in states that Trump won narrowly. Um, What kind of stuck out to me during the shutdown fight was the back and forth with Bob Casey and Lou Barletta, who's looking to be probably the likely Republican candidate against him. He's a congressman. He's also a hardliner on immigration issues. Right. He was the mayor of Hazleton, Pennsylvania, right. and kind of made his bones as as like really coming down mm-hmm. hard on illegal immigration. And he, throughout the weekend, was pushing this narrative that Bob Casey is choosing illegal immigrants over Pennsylvania's children. And Casey's response was really strong for kind of a laid-back quieter senator um, saying he was clearly just angry about this narrative saying Republicans didn't reauthorize the children's health insurance program when they could have and they don't give a damn about children and like really strong language for him. So it kind of was an interesting preview of that race and how immigration might play into it a little bit more, especially with Congressman Barletta, if he becomes the nominee. Now, in some of these other states, I mean, Bill Nelson is also, I mean, mm-hmm. he, he's running for re-election. His, his probable, I guess we could call it, opponent would be Rick Scott, who's the governor who's, who's not running. Or he's, 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 he, well, he's not running yet, but all indications are that he probably will uh, take on Nelson. But Florida dynamics very different on immigration than it is in a place like Pennsylvania mm-hmm. or Michigan or, or Wisconsin or Ohio, which are predominantly, they're, they're whiter, older states. Florida is like a brand new state every other year. That's right. 
Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how kind of the shift in immigration um, with immigrants coming from Puerto Rico, how that changes the dynamic. Um, and Republicans have been going pretty hard after after Bill Nelson, too. Um, and Democrats are starting to target Rick Scott as well. You see all these emails from the DSCC, uh, even though he's not officially in the race yet. Yeah, it, it is this interesting sort of dynamic in, in Florida where you have Puerto Ricans coming to the to the mainland, to coming to Florida because of, of you know, the, the hurricanes and all the devastation rot in, in Puerto Rico, they can vote right away. I mean, they're they're uh, they're American citizens. And Rick Scott has to be aware of that and, and aware of, uh, that also one of the the most prominent advocates for immigration in the Dreamers is a Puerto Rican guy from Chicago, Luis Gutierrez. There doesn't seem to be one attack line for the Republicans on all these 10 Democrats, or is there? Um, That's a good point. I think they will try to use the same cookie-cutter message on a lot of them. I mean, you've already seen them going after the immigration thing, like I said, in Montana, even though Tester kind of ruled that out and, you know, not a huge population there, whatever. But I think in all of these races, you're going to see really district and state-specific tailored messages. I mean, we're talking about the Democrats and sort of the divide between the 2020 hopefuls and the 2018ers and how they have to do different things. But Republicans have had to do the same thing, too. If you just look at the the tax plan, you know, some of the most vulnerable House Republicans couldn't vote for this thing that is supposed to be like the party's saving grace in 2018, just because, you know, they have a district with high state and local taxes, whatever. So such as your native New Jersey, such as my native New Jersey, (laughs) Rodney Friedenheisen's district. I think um, something else that's important to note about these 10 Democrats is, aside from Missouri with Claire McCaskill and Hawley, we don't know who the Republican nominee is going to be in a lot of these states. So there's going to be the Democrats can kind of do their own thing and Republicans are still fighting it out. So we still don't really know what the matchup is going to look like and won't know for a few months. That's a good place to end it. Bridget, Simone, thank you so much for for joining us on Political Theater. Uh, We have a lot of mileage to go before November, so we'll be definitely having you back and we'll talk about these uh, new developments. I'm Jason Dick. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. And please, please, pretty please, rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at RollCall. Thanks for listening.